is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything on this show. And we love to spend time on marriage. The subject of marriage is a big one. And that's why we do this Relationship Radio Hour. And joining us always on this is J.P. DeGantz of Communio. And we discover J.P. doing his work trying to save marriages and lower divorce rates and managed to lower divorce rates in Duval County in Florida, home of Jacksonville, by 24% in three years. And so he said, that guy is our relationship expert for our relationship hour. Now let's turn to Communio's J.P. DeGantz. Michael and Chelsea are both from Duval County. As kids growing up, each of their homes came with the normal dysfunction found in many American families. Chelsea's dad and brother were both alcoholics, leading to some very intense home situations. Michael also came from a home with some struggles. When he was young, his mom left his dad, leaving Michael and his sister without a mother. Soon his dad remarried. Michael and his stepmother didn't get along very well, which brought about some very heated arguments. When Chelsea was a teenager, her family moved across the street from Michael's family. They soon became friends. And since Chelsea was just two years older, she gave Michael rides to and from school. During our car rides that we had time to talk together, I think um, you know, one of the issues that I opened up most about was just what was going on at home with my family. Um, I, I don't really remember any other person that I shared those details with like I did Michael. Feelings began developing, and soon enough, Chelsea and Michael were more than just friends. Their first official date was on Valentine's Day. The two of us going to the park and we had a little picnic and on a blanket and, and it was, you know, in the evening time and the, the park is right on the river and it was it was just peaceful and quiet and and uh, I, I if I remember correctly that was when we first told each other that we loved each other. I guess that's a pretty serious first date if we told each other we loved each other, but uh, yeah, I mean when we officially became a couple I was 17 and he was 15. So when did Chelsea know she wanted to marry Michael? I mean, we already knew each other so well. We knew each other's families. Clearly on our first official date, we said, I love you. And because of the, you know, kind of the dysfunction in my family and kind of the emotional wounds that I had, and I guess I kind of compared Michael to my dad. You know, my dad was abrasive and could never be sensitive and got upset if I cried. And Michael was just very loving, very understanding, sensitive to how I was feeling. So basically, I kind of just latched on to him and said, you know, to myself that he was going to help me get you know, away from my family and that we were going to stay together and that we were going to have a different kind of life than what I grew up with. Michael's affections for Chelsea grew and he soon realized he wanted to marry her. They had a nice, modest wedding at a chapel in Jacksonville. But this high school love story wasn't quite what it seemed. Pretty soon, some not-so-small issues started to arise before the wedding day even happened. Um, I first found out about Michael's infidelity. Um, it was still while we were engaged. 
the first time where it was undeniable, we were at our apartment and we had actually just been intimate together and I picked up Michael's phone. Um, I was just lying in the bed, picked up Michael's phone and it was just black and white in my face. There was no denying it. I couldn't deny it myself. Michael couldn't deny it that he had been involved with another person. Um, I was completely shocked, devastated, heartbroken. Um, I, I definitely cried. Michael probably cried, you know, apologized, said that, you know, he was sorry and that it would never happen again. And, um, I mean, I wanted to believe him. I mean, I, I did believe him. Although maybe that would be cause for someone to halt everything and say, I'm not going through with this marriage. I was, I was dedicated to my plan. I had a plan that we were getting married and we were starting a life together. So I decided to say this stuff was awful, but I forgive you and it's never going to happen again, right? And we continued on with the wedding. I just, you know, saw the day as the beginning of our life together and the, the infidelity that had happened uh, previously, you know, I, I had chosen to put that in the past and, and believe that we were starting this new chapter together away from the chaos and dysfunction that really both of us had kind of grown up with that we were going to do things different. I remember us having probably quite a few conversations about that, that our life was going to be different than that. And we've been listening to Michael and Chelsea. And my goodness, it's so courageous of them to share their stories with so many, uh, because it's a rough story. But we're all nodding in the studio, and anybody who's ever been in a relationship, well, they know of the betrayals, the infidelities, the things that can happen, what people do to each other, even the people they care about. And how do they get to the other side? And this is part of our relationship radio hour. We try to do one of these every week. We will be. Because it's the most important relationship in the world. It's the husband and wife relationship. The father and the mother. Keep a family together. Keep the family unit together. And my goodness, you change the world. More of Michael and Chelsea's story here on Our American Stories.
we return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the story of Michael and Chelsea as part of our relationship hour here on Our American Stories. They've known each other for 15 years, but before they even got married, Chelsea found out that Michael was unfaithful. We return to J.P. DeGantz, by the way, with special thanks to Live the Life. J.P. works with all kind of terrific local ministries around this great country, his organization Communio does. They can't do their work without groups like Live the Life. Let's return now to Michael and Chelsea's story. So Michael's unfaithfulness before marriage soon affected their relationship in marriage. And the coming of their first child didn't change his actions. So what led to Michael's infidelity? For me, it started as something as uh, might seem small, but something, you know, like porn, watching porn. And, you know, it's something that, you know, your mind will get used to it, you know, as, as I did. It got used to it, and, and, uh, and you get almost a high from it, and you want to move on to the, the next greatest thing that that's going to get that high. I had friends that we all hung out together. Um, there were some girls here and there that were in those groups and you know it just kind of led to me straying away from what I had uh, with Chelsea. It turned into looking at ads on on Craigslist and, and meeting up with people and I guess just looking for that high I guess or, or if you want to call it that. Was it something Chelsea wasn't doing? All the years and relapses of acting out, he never once um, like directly blamed me or said that there was something wrong with our sex life or that I caused his um, infidelity. Um, but when he was in an unhealthy state of mind and kind of overly uh, sexualized or overly exposed because of the pornography or maybe the acting out, it definitely produced a negative, some negative impacts in our sex life. Whether I knew he was acting out or looking at pornography, um, there would be there would be arguments about that we weren't having enough sex, that we weren't having the right kind of sex, that I wasn't initiating sex enough. Um, so, there, yeah, there was definitely some kind of effects that we know in retrospect were just caused because he, he, uh, he was just over, overstimulated. So how far into their marriage did Chelsea find out this was still going on. The first repeated incidents was, I, we were, I think, about six months into marriage. I'm positive, again, it was something on Michael's phone that, that led me to uh, discovering the infidelity. And I, I may not have stumbled on it at this point, but since there had, you know, been infidelity in the past, I... Uh, maybe was suspicious and may have even been kind of snooping and searching through the phone and then I found something. I was also almost six months pregnant at that point so it was uh, even more difficult to find because uh, it just felt like this life that I had 
you know, planned. And the baby that I had on the way was just like kind of shattered. And I just, in one instant, like felt like here I am from going, from being, you know, all a pregnant newlywed really to like a future of being a single mom. Michael was addicted to porn and sex. Things weren't changing, so Chelsea finally made a dramatic move. I, I packed up all my stuff and I left and I went to my parents' house because I just couldn't, I just couldn't deal with it. Um, uh, the emotional pain is indescribable. And um, so I don't know what I was, I don't know if I was thinking about divorce at that point, but I just knew I couldn't be in this house. Um, but over the next couple of months after that, while I was living at my parents' house, me and Michael both started attending church separately. And we'd run into each other there. And and this was pretty shocking for me because he was an atheist. You know, there was talk of God at, when I was growing up, but he was just flat-out unbelief. So to see him at church was pretty shocking. And um, it, it was probably only through that shock that I started to have a little bit of hope that, you know, maybe with God in the picture, we could fix this. So as an atheist, why did Michael start going to church? I was working night shift and I just was having a real hard time being by myself. I really missed Chelsea and, you know, just living in regret and, I don't know, just really terrible, dark feelings, you know, and I, I just started thinking that, you know, what I had been doing over and over again was not working, uh, you know, for myself and that maybe, maybe there was more to this world or this life and, and so I guess I started to open my heart to, you know, church in general and, um, I kept going uh, Wednesday after Wednesday, and then I eventually um, I started uh, uh, helping at the church, serving on one of the serve teams. I was helping parking cars, and and um, I remember this one Wednesday night, I had an empty seat next to me, and I was hoping that she'd show up because we had kind of let each other know that we were going, and sure enough, she showed up, and uh, sat next to me and I don't know it was from there on that I, I really kind of opened my heart to God and, and let him in um, now I wasn't healed per se you know after that but um, things definitely changed in, in my you know mind and heart and just the the way I started doing things was a little bit different. I was definitely on the road in the right direction. So Chelsea moved back in with Michael and they both gave their lives to Christ. Things were beginning to change. However, old habits die hard. And it wasn't long until things went off track again in their marriage and sex life. About three years in, someone suggested that they attend Hope Weekend, a couples retreat organized by Comunio's local partner Live the Life Ministries. It was a program focused on struggling marriages. 
we ended up at Hope Weekend not because I knew of anything that was going on, but just because I just still felt like our marriage was not healthy. Um, there was just a lot of triggers for me, and we j- I, I had a wall up. I'm sure I did, and um, we we got with um, Celebration Church and Pastor Wayne, and they actually helped us get a partial scholarship so that we could afford to go. We just learned some really practical communication tools. Um, That was one aspect of it. Um, They really helped us to see that our life was better with our spouse. There may be important things or stuff that we like or we want to do, but that it doesn't really mean anything if you don't have someone to share it with. At the end of Hope Weekend, they ask you to um, sit on the floor and your, let your partner, you know, lay their head in your lap and and act as if they are dead and speak to them what you want to say to them and what you wish you would have said and just, I mean, it was really emotional um, to imagine that person not being there anymore, even though all of the pain and trauma that they had caused. For me personally, it helped me to see when I was a teenager growing up with my family, Michael was my knight in shining armor. And even after all those years of pain and infidelity, I still felt that way about him and I still wanted to be with him. Five years in, having already gone through so much in their marriage, things got rocky again. Michael had a relapse. I think that was really like the full-on breaking point. I was fully assured that we were done and we were getting a divorce. But uh, but Michael decided on his own to go to a men's intensive um, that was specific uh, to these issues. And I think that's what really prompted him to come out fully uh, with every single little detail. And you've been listening to Michael and Chelsea, and I mean opening up about the rawest things, the toughest things that happen in their life. And my goodness, it takes courage to do that. Secrets, in the end, kill marriages. They kill relationships. And when we come back, more of Michael and Chelsea's story here on Relationship Radio Hour on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and Michael and Chelsea's story. They were five years into their marriage and things were not getting better. Michael had relapsed into his sex and porn addiction. Now we return to J.P. DeGantz, to Michael and Chelsea, and the final portion of our relationship hour. Michael knew something had to give, so he went to a Bethesda workshop a Christian-based program that helps people overcome porn and sex addiction. That was the first time that I really sat down in front of any, just anybody, period. Not just people I didn't know, but just anybody, period, and tell them about every single little thing that I had ever done or never told anybody in my life. 
And that right there created a clean slate for me to start over with. Um, without that, I'm 100% sure that I would continue the, the old cycle over and over again. So being able to get everything out in the open and actually share with people that I have never seen in my life, um, you know, and, and know that they're there for the same thing, it was definitely helpful. So Michael came home to Chelsea and started to put what he'd learned into practice. He confessed everything to her. Most people would have thrown in the towel a long time ago, but not Chelsea. Why did she not give up on Michael? In my heart, I, I thought I was done, and I felt fully confident that, well, I've done everything I could do. You know, I can walk away knowing that I, I did what I could, you know, and that he, he just can't change. Um, but obviously it was the people that surrounded me and some of the resources and knowledges that I, that I already had, but really the breaking, the breaking point was just this unmeasurable hope that God gave me and just through a series of experiences with God where I just felt like he chased me down to love me and to just fill me with a hope that does not make sense it doesn't make sense that Jesus could rise from the dead and it doesn't make sense to the world that my completely burnt up crumbled marriage could ever survive, but God filled me with a hope that it was possible. So what motivated Michael to keep fighting? I, I remember when my son was just a little baby, I remember promising him, I don't know, I can't remember if he was sleeping or taking a nap, but I remember promising him that, you know, things were going to be different and I was going to make sure that I was always there for him. And, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that he had, you know, a, a healthy father, so. Communio, that is, having a community, became essential to Michael and Chelsea. They soon learned the benefit of leaning on friends who've had a similar walk. They put together a group that, you know, it didn't have to be a secret because this is like, this is the hidden it's the hidden addiction. No one wants to talk about it. Everyone's ashamed of it. People don't want to bring it up at church or talk to their pastors about it. So, you know, our group leaders, you know, recognize that and and put together, you know, I, I don't at some points, I mean, it could be 20 different couples who are all going through the same things. And, um, you know, that's just really helpful to feel like you're not alone. And, um, and just to see that, you know, they're still together, they survived, and and just to have people that we could be completely honest with and accountable to was crucial. It's important to surround yourself with people that are for your marriage. Chelsea and Michael's bravery to share their story is admirable, but how are things today? Where we're at now is the best that we've been so far because um, not only is their honesty and fidelity, but there's our spiritual life, you know, that we're on the same page about, and that's the foundation really of our life. But, um, you know, we're, we're over three years out now from um, the last 
episode of infidelity and I truly believe that Michael has changed but we still have some accountability things that are in place you know there's some things um, on the phone and and it doesn't mean that I'm even looking at it really but part of me feeling confident in my marriage is his willingness and him being humble enough to just make me feel secure. doesn't matter how much time has passed. And, um, you know, there's, there are some days where I I get worried, um, or I feel insecure or nervous and, and he's always patient and willing to reassure me that things are just what they look like. Um, that I'm not imagining that we have a happy life and behind the scenes it's something else. Um, so I'm not going to say that it's perfect, but it's really good and it's real. Things may be a lot better now, but it's still important that they actively protect their marriage. That involves complete transparency. If there's nothing to hide, obviously, then there's no point in, you know, putting up any kind of resistance to making her feel safe. And if, if making her feel safe requires some, uh, some little safety nets here and there um, in our daily routines, then I'm okay with it. Um, because it doesn't affect me enough to where it, you know, bothers me. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't either way, you know, because there's nothing there. So um, there's nothing to hide. Um, and somebody, somebody mentioned something to me during my recovery process, and it's always stuck with me. And, it, you know, it says that they said that, uh, you know, no matter how far you, down, you are down the road on recovery, you're, you're still the same distance from the ditch. So you might have traveled a long distance, you know, in a straight line, but you're still the same distance from the ditch. And it's very easy to veer off that path if you're not careful or safe or at least, you know, trying to be productive and, and, you know, keeping yourself safe. You have to always be on guard. It's frequently important to get everything out in the open to be able to start out with a clean slate. But Chelsea has some words of advice to husbands. Don't lay everything out on the table without a support system. You need some people um, around you to uh, to kind of guide you in that journey and to help support you because uh, especially if there's a wife that doesn't know anything, it's not loving or fair for her husband to dump uh, his whole life worth of baggage on her and expect her to be able to handle it on her own. You know, it's really important to us that the experience and the pain that we've gone through that it's not wasted um, I don't know that we're called to you be marriage counselors or start a ministry but whenever the opportunity presents itself we're more than willing to to share our experience and and be vulnerable and honest uh, because you know I just know how our God works and he doesn't waste the pain that we've gone through. So I've seen it in our lives, beauty, beauty from ashes. And, uh, you know, if we can help provide just, you know, a small inkling of hope, then that's what we want to do. And my goodness, what a story, Michael and Chelsea's story for all the folks out there mired in addiction, too much work. Work is an addiction, too, for so many men and women. 
and all the other things that can ail a relationship, there's hope on the other side. And you can, from ashes, turn that relationship into beauty. And that's what so many of us walking our faith walks try and do in our relationships every day. And a special thanks to Live the Life, the local ministry on the ground in Duval County, helping heal this relationship. J.P. DeGantz and his team at Communio, while they're doing Relationship Radio Hour with us here on Our American Stories, Michael and Chelsea's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now we bring you the story of Edie Hand, a friend of ours whose life, well it was so compelling, it was so interesting that we wanted to bring it to you. It's a life shaped by both a lot of love, but as you're about to hear, a whole lot of loss. Here's Edie. It was a setting in northwest Alabama just like in a novel. A sister's love for these three young boys, David, Terry, and Philip. Every afternoon after school, we would get off our school bus, run inside and get us a doodad cookie and head to the barn. I would saddle up my horse. My horse was named Trigger. And I named it Trigger because of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. David would saddle up his horse named Spotted Cloud because he loved the Long Ranger and Tonto. And then Philip, now he saddled up his horse. He had a little Shetland pony, and he named his horse Polly because he was in love with our Avon lady. And then there was Terry. He was just too small to have his own horse, so I would throw him on the back with me. We would head to the Indian mounds, and on our property we had about 40 acres, and we would get to the top of the mounds, and it was a wonderful place to lie down, let the horses wander around, and we would start talking about our dreams. Now, David, he was going to be a race car driver. He was a great talker, and he was really funny. He would turn his hat around backwards and He would get his pocket knife out and start cutting holes in his hat all the time, making them bigger and pull his curls through it. And he would pick up a pine cone and start saying, Oh, here comes Ruth Magoo down the road. She has one kid. No, I believe there's four, maybe five. Ruth had rather large arms, and she had one hanging out the side of the window, and she was smoking a cigar. So we just had a field day with Ruth Magoo. And then there was Philip. He was really kind of shy. He felt like he was, he just didn't know how to get involved with people, but he loved music. And my mother's brothers were singers and songwriters, and we come from the history of the, the late Elvis Presley of that family on our grandmother's side. So he says, I think I'm just gonna grow up and be a songwriter and maybe drink a little whiskey because that seems to get all the girls coming around. So 
We said, oh, well, whatever, you know, he was going to do. But I learned from him about seizing moments in life. And he was that way. He tried to seize moments if it was playing football, if he were up to bat for a baseball game. He wanted to be the best he could be, always practicing to be the best and seize every moment of something that could be great, not good. And then there was Terry. I think I learned the most about life from him. Uh, He taught us about courage. He wanted to grow up and become an architect because our dad's dad was a builder. He built buildings and homes, and Terry said he was going to grow up and be a big architect. He wanted to build all kinds of skyscrapers, buildings. And we said, wow, we barely can say the word, but you're going to do this? Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was kind of cool to hear everybody share what they were going to do, and they would say, so, Edith, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to write about other people, and I'm going to be a movie star. And they went, oh, sure. Well, we're going to visit you in your mansion one day, okay? And so we teased each other. And our mother, her name was Sue, but her mother had named her Ripple Sue. So we would call her Rip Dip, which she hated. So when we were on the Indian mounds, and Rip Dip would get really loud. But when she was about the fifth or sixth time, Edith, David, Terry, Philip, come home and eat. Well, we, I said, boys, let's get up. It's time to go home. Rip dips on our last scream, you know. So we would know to mount up, get those horses back to the barn to go have dinner. But it was a wonderful way of growing up in this simpler times. But I guess I just didn't realize that what was happening in my life and what I was learning from them, it was my only time that I was going to have with them because... They would die young. David died at the age of 19 in a car accident. I was a senior in college. I was devastated. At that particular time in my life, he was my best friend, and he was the most important man in my life. So it took me a year just to kind of get back into the groove of life. And he was the first one in our family to pass away. Ten years later, my brother Philip was killed in an automobile accident. I remember what a horrible time it was that my father called me and he said, I'm, your mother and I just can't go. Would you come and identify your brother? I just didn't realize how hard that would be. I drove to North Alabama and identified the body. It was just so hard seeing how life really was. One day you can be with someone and the next, they're not a part of your life. You're washing their last load of clothes. Then I guess to me, the last one, the strongest one, Terry, they found he had an aneurysm in the middle of the brain. And Terry had brain surgery, and I'll never forget the courage that it took the night his neurosurgeon came out and said, I don't know if we can save him. I'm going to have to leave his head open. We're going to try to go back in one more time. 
would you like to see him? I remember my mother was unconsolable, and my father was with her, and I went to be with him. It was like a war zone for me. I'd never seen anything quite like I saw in that room at the UAB hospital. I'd never seen that kind of pain before. His hands were strapped down, and I remember he said, you have to save me. You have to save me. And I, I could not save him. And I stayed with him as long as I could, and I prayed. I tried to comfort him. There was no way to comfort him. I went outside, and I said, you have to do something for him, Doc. You have to do something. He said, I'm going to put him in a room. You can stay with him all night. I don't know that he'll make it, but we're going to try surgery again tomorrow. I remember I didn't think he would make it either, but he went into the surgery. They lost his hearing. He, he lost his taste. Several things weren't the same. They sent him home more of a broken man. Didn't think he would live very long. But Terry, watching him fight for life, taught me so much about courage, of how he wanted to live as best he could, that my father built a ramp in his sunken den, that he'd built his home with his own two hands on his land. He talked every day or listened to country music. Then he realized when he went back to the doctor that he was going to be losing his speech. I never saw someone with that much determination. He says, what can I do, Edith? So I I fixed an A to Z sign for him, and I said, I'll point at these letters. We'll make it work. So that is the way we communicated. And he said one day, he said, I am going to lose my voice. Would you promise me that when my time comes, would you come and hold me? And I want you to tell our story one day that the Blackburn boys, that our life would be an encouragement to tell people it's important to be kind to one another, to enjoy the simpler things of life. It's not all about the money you can make, but it is what we do for one another and how we encourage one another. You know, and I'm glad that God allowed me to be able, when I got the call, to come, and I held him in my arms. Now they're all buried under that big oak tree. And in the loss of these three young boys, it took me a long time, but I know this, if we all look for it, no matter what season of life we're in or what hardship we face, or heartbreak, that there is something beautiful to come out of it if we look for that. And that has been my saving grace. And you just heard Edie Hand's story. There's not a dry eye in our room. And what a story about remembrance, about family. Her brother, she buried them all. And all too young, David, 19, in a car accident. It took her a year to get over that. Ten years later, Philip, another car accident. The parents couldn't even go and ID the body. Edie had to do that. And then watching her brother struggle after an aneurysm, learning about courage, how he fought for life, taught me about life, she said about her brother Terry. And he also said, tell our story one day. 
And so Edie just did. Be kind to one another. Enjoy life. It's not all about the money. And the three brothers, all those three brothers and sister who rode horses together on those 40 acres, the three boys are buried under an oak tree. What a beautiful story. What a sad story. Edie Han's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to the arts, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. And send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org, because we want to hear them, and we think the country wants to hear them, too. You're the hour in Our American Stories. And this next story is about the rule of law, about something that all of us have experienced at some time or another getting a traffic ticket. Adam McLeod is a law professor at Faulkner, and that's in Alabama. And as you'll hear, a stickler for justice. Here's Adam. My particular story begins when I received in the mail a couple of years ago a traffic camera ticket. I knew that I hadn't actually done anything wrong because I wasn't even driving the car. In fact, at the time that I was alleged to have broken these laws, I was in a faculty meeting at the law school where I teach. So I decided I was going to challenge this ticket on the principle of the thing. I was given a day to appear in court, and on that day I went over to our local municipal court and I sat down amongst all those who had been charged with various crimes and those who had received tickets like mine. About an hour later, a bailiff came out and herded into a corner of the courtroom those of us who had appeared for this offense of owning a vehicle that had passed by a camera at too high a speed. So we all waited there, first for the clerk and then to be called individually to meet the clerk. Now, some people in our group decided to just pay the fine and be done with it. Others of us requested a hearing with a magistrate judge. Of course, this evoked a exasperated response from the clerk and then we were required to wait around for the magistrate to show up to conduct the hearings then we each had to wait even more for our turn to appear before the magistrate now the magistrate ruled against me in a rather summary hearing so i decided that i was going to appeal the judgment up to the county level court known as the circuit court Now, I went to the clerk's office and decided I was going to try to file my appeal, and the clerk's office made me wait in the lobby even more. And when they finally saw me, they insisted that I provide a criminal appeal bond. I pointed out that they had claimed this was not a crime that I had committed, but they were charging me with a civil violation. But no matter, no appeal bond, no appeal, they said. So I pulled out my checkbook. Nope, we don't accept checks. Come back with the amount of your ticket in cash. I left the courthouse, found an ATM, 
pulled out the amount of my ticket in cash and returned and was left waiting in the lobby again. Finally, I was readmitted to the clerk's office. I saw a different employee who now told me that I had to pay twice the amount of my ticket in cash. So I left, found another ATM, came back, more waiting, before I was finally allowed to file a criminal appeal bond for a crime I never committed. When I got home, I decided to call the city attorney to see if she really wanted to go through with this. And it turns out she does. Now, one doesn't always expect municipal officials to be paragons of lawfulness, but I was a little bit jarred to encounter a city attorney who really didn't know much about the law or her constitutional duties. A really basic distinction in the law, particularly when you're hauled into court, is between what are known as civil proceedings and criminal proceedings. Civil actions are designed to remedy injuries that people cause each other wrongly. So for example, if I were to trespass on my neighbor's lawn or commit a tort against him by punching him in the face, he could bring an action against me personally. Criminal actions are actions taken against people who have acted culpably against the public law in some way by breaking what are known as criminal laws, such as criminal prohibitions against stealing or perjury. I asked the city attorney whether this was a criminal action or a civil action. She replied, it's hard to explain it in those terms. So I said, well, okay, which do you intend to proceed under? The rules of criminal procedure or the rules of civil procedure? She said, we're going to go under the rules of criminal procedure because this is a criminal case. At this point, I pointed out that to start a criminal case, the state has to provide certain due process. It has to provide a charge and an indictment. It has to show that it has probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. But she replied that none of those things would happen because this is a civil action. So I could expect to be served with a civil action complaint then, right? No, no, she said, as she'd already explained, we would proceed under the criminal rules. I decided to take a different tack. I asked whether I was alleged to have violated the criminal law or to have committed some private wrong. She said I had violated the rules of the road. And she explained, you were caught on a camera speeding. I asked her if she had any evidence that I was caught on a camera speeding. Of course, she didn't. And she replied that she didn't need evidence. I was deemed liable because an automobile that I own was caught speeding. I pointed out that the ticket was issued against me, not against my car. But I'm liable, she said, because I loaned my vehicle to someone who speeds, whatever that means. So I asked her where in the laws it prohibits me from loaning my vehicle and how I'm supposed to know in advance that any particular person is going to use my car to speed. Agitated by my semantics, she advised me to raise any issues that I had with the trial court and then hung up on me. I knew this was going to be fun. And what a story this is. And by the way, we're all laughing here because it's happened to all of us. And this conflation of civil and criminal law and the way our cities and community police systems use traffic tickets as a revenue grab. And we know it. We can feel it. It's the end of the month. And there they are. It's not about our safety. It's about the money. And this city attorney... Well, she ran up against a pesky attorney 
And something tells me there's a lot more to this story. It's Adam McLeod's story, but it's so many of our stories as we relate to these, well, pesky civil slash criminal slash civil violations. And I loved that this poor city attorney really couldn't articulate the difference between criminal and civil offense. When we come back, Adam McLeod's story here on Our American Story. We continue with our American stories and Adam McLeod's story. And this is a legal yarn. I mean, it may not be John Grisham territory, but I'm telling you, if you're listening, I know you're really interested. How does he beat this ticket? How does he beat this city attorney? Well, let's go back to Adam for more. Before the trial, I decided to file what's known as a motion to dismiss. This is a motion which calls the attention of the court to the weakness of the prosecution's argument and asked the court to rule that there is no legal basis for the prosecution. Now, I tried to make this motion interesting because I wanted the trial judge to pay attention. In fact, I made the motion rather over the top. I alluded to political philosophers like Hobbes and Locke. I quoted the American Declaration of Independence. I suggested that the success of the American experiment in ordered liberty was at stake in my case. I resorted to superlatives did all the things that I tell my students never to do. We went to trial. The city produced one witness, the police officer, who had signed the affidavit, which was included in my ticket. Now, when he was being asked questions by the city attorney on what's known as direct examination, he explained that the traffic camera system is actually run by a corporation in another state called American Traffic Solutions that American Traffic Solutions chooses photographs from the various photographs they receive through their equipment and then recommends to the Montgomery Police Department, where I live, to initiate actions against particular vehicle owners and then gets paid for its work. Then it was my turn to ask the police officer questions. I stood up and asked a few targeted questions. This is known to lawyers as cross-examination. I established that the police officer was not present at the time of the alleged violation. He has no photographic evidence that I was driving the car, much less that anyone was driving the car. There were no witnesses. He does not know where Adam McLeod was at the time of the alleged violation. And then finally, I asked the concluding question, the one question I always teach my students never to ask, but I thought there's no harm in being dramatic in a case like this, since I was doing it for the principle of the thing. I asked the police officer, so you signed an affidavit under the pains and penalties of perjury, alleging probable cause to believe that Adam McLeod committed a violation of traffic laws without any evidence that that was so. Without hesitating, he answered, yes. This surprised both of us police officer had just admitted that he committed perjury. 
It also surprised the judge, who looked up from his desk for the first time. The police officers in the back of the room also paid attention, for their colleague had just testified that he had perjured himself in service to a city government and a mysterious faraway corporation whose officers probably earned many times his salary. At this point, the city rested its case, and I renewed my motion to dismiss the case, and the judge immediately granted it. Victory, vindication, well, sort of. I tried to recover my doubled appeal bond, but I was told that the clerk was not authorized to give me my money. Naturally, the law authorizing these proceedings contains no procedure for return of the bond in the event that the accused wins, and in fact, imposes on the court no duty to return the appeal bond at the end of the proceedings. It seems that the lawmakers never would have imagined that anyone would actually beat the system. The clerk advised me to write a motion for the return of my appeal bond. Weeks later, when the court still had not ruled on my motion, I was told that I could file a motion asking for a ruling on my earlier motion. I bowed to absurdity, and I did so. Still nothing happened for almost two years, until finally I received in the mail a check for twice the amount of the ticket, equal to the appeal bond I had paid. The city kept all the accrued interest. Now, why does this matter? Why did I bother to go through all the trouble, jumping through all the hoops, and putting up with all of the obstacles which the city put in my way to challenging this traffic ticket? Well, traffic camera tickets tend to be popular in many places for a number of reasons, but I think they're profoundly unjust. They're popular in part because they appeal to a law and order impulse that we all share. We want to stop nefarious evildoers and scofflaws who jeopardize the health of motorists and the Republic generally by sliding through yellow lights or trying to beat a red and therefore endanger the lives and health of others. On the other hand, these traffic cameras don't distinguish between scofflaws and people who are actually trying to obey the law and who committed de minimis infraction by driving through empty streets at 30 miles an hour in compliance with the speed limit and who end up a couple inches over the white line when the light turns red. Also, traffic cameras don't always produce probable cause that a particular person has committed a crime, as in my case. There is no evidence, in fact. To get around this problem, several states have created this new category of law, which I encountered in my case, what they call a civil violation of a criminal law. And using this nifty device, a city can charge you of a crime without any witnesses, without any criminal due process protections like probable cause determinations or an indictment, and without any civil due process protections like any showing that anyone's been injured as a result of your actions. So in short, the government officials and their private contractors have at their disposal the powers of both criminal and civil proceedings, and they're excused from the due process and constitutional requirements of both criminal and civil law. It's a neat trick. Equally troubling, I think, is that 
municipal governments are authorized to make an owner of a car answer a civil suit even though the city has not suffered any particular injury. Usually, no fellow citizen can haul you into court without first at least alleging, if not showing, that you wrongly caused some injury to that person. And a city cannot lawfully do to you what your fellow citizen cannot do to you. It has no power to haul you into court if it suffered no injury. And if a driver rolls through a yellow light at an empty intersection and fails to cross the line before the light turns red, when the streets are empty, no one's injured, least of all the city. In my case, the city attorney argued that the city has the power to haul me into court because someone exceeded the speed limit while driving my car. Now, it's certainly true that all citizens have a duty not to break criminal laws with culpable intent. But the American experiment in ordered liberty and the rule of law means that we owe that duty not to the city, but to each other. If we breach the duty, the city prosecutes crimes on behalf of the people and must give us criminal due process. The city has to produce evidence, for example. This is American Constitutionalism 101. Now, I wrote about this encounter with the city government in an essay that ended up attracting national media attention. My essay also attracted the attention of state legislatures who repealed the traffic camera law in my state. The uh, Montgomery mayor remained defiant for some time before finally ending the program and announcing that the city will no longer use car-based traffic cameras, though it's going to continue to use stationary cameras mounted at intersections near traffic lights. So my story ends well. It's not ended as well for other Americans who don't have the time or the expertise to challenge programs such as this. And I think this is unfortunate. Traffic camera laws seem like minor, insignificant intrusions on liberty. And so many people fail to grasp that they're actually really, really significant constitutional infringements. They reflect a profoundly mistaken view of American constitutionalism. And that is so true. And thank you, Adam McLeod, for just sticking it out and sticking it out for all of us, because it's so true. If you can do this, what else can you do? I think that's the point. And contracting with a private company to, well, just get some money into the pockets of a local mayor, because that's what's going on here, and everybody knows it, and we're all resentful of this, actually, because those police should be used to stop rapists and murder and actual harms to we the people, not just sitting over a hill waiting for you to do 11 miles an hour in a 10-mile-an-hour speed limit zone and just hit you that day because they had a quota to meet. And by the way, I've, I've talked to any number of cops who hate it. They hate being forced to do this and to basically find their own citizens to meet a budget quota. This is Lee Habib, Adam McLeod's story. And my goodness, anyone who's ever gotten a ticket from one of these electronic devices, our stories too, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American history. In 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really. The Beastie Boys, barely out of their teens, had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act. Now, here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with that Rob and me. My team! The cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauk, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond, three MCs from NYC, started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like The Misfits and The Dead Kennedys in some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. In 1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Ruben's DJ stint would be short-lived, and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin. In the very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. I was born to be the king of the bebop swing that has the records that were made early in the years of hip hop. They were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that. It was a DJ scratching, and it was beats. Who can make a cripple man dance by using his mouth if he give me a chance? I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record store I hung out in, and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC. Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. So insignificant, you could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. 
Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenage boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D. Rick definitely came from like a whole ACDC, like Led Zeppelin, Long Island, like rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess in that sense, kind of introduced us because we kind of came from like punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip hop. And he kind of definitely brought that, that kind of in, in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of like Led Zeppelin having beats or, you know, ACDC having grooves or beats, whatever. Here's Ruben. I grew up on Long Island and kind of liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll. So I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and, and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip hop. It was just an interesting cross-pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different places. After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys video was at. The only reason that we haven't done a video yet is because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to Beastie TV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long. The Beastie survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Manello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre. So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap. On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes, and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian, the audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience, the black audience at the Apollo, which a white audience sits there and goes, okay, entertain me. A black audience goes, what you got? What you got, sucker? Basically, because they, they want to be entertained. And when the Beasties first came on, they were not greeted with, with widespread approval, but usually by the end of their set, they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly. We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming and hollering, trying to get to them. Wanting to have a good time and, and loving the guys just generally because of they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, the beats were very aggressive. So in hip-hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC. So those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats, with the big drums and the big bop, 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 boom, bop, 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 and all that craziness. And all we did is just scratch it. So you heard the zigga, zigga, boom, boom, bop, zigga, boom, boom, bop. So we always used the same, kind of like similar beats. So it was kind of like right there on the same thing. But uh, it was the commentary and the delivery that was a little different. Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC. Now I remember these guys coming out and doing Hold It Not Hit It and the crowd went crazy. 
I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to, co to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. That's Rakim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage because everybody felt like they were their little brothers. Like They would open up for us. It was like the black audience, and we could be like down in the South, down in Texas, or down in South Carolina, in some really Southern black Negro town. And when the BCs came out, and um, Dr. Dre was scratching, and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming, it wasn't like people said, all right, let me go get a prank. And people stood there and was like, yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These white boys are good. Say ho, ho. Here's Public Enemies, Chuck D. They was almost like the flip side, like Jackie Robinson was the baseball, the Beastie Boys were to rap music. Here's Beastie Boys, MCA, and Mike D. When we first came out making hip-hop, people were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip-hop or doing it too much. So, like, I guess a lot of kids would just check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what? You guys are white? Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time. And when we come back, more on the life and the work of the BC Boys, and we love music here, every kind, from Miles Davis to Merle Haggard. We do everything here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler. From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds, one in the hip-hop world and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from the Village Voice. Three Jerks Make a Masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR, to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian, Joan Rivers. Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right? Kill. Kill. That's ill, Joan. Well, I'm telling you, I've got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. Okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album. <laughs> It didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the R&B charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer, 
Wednesday, Adams. I remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out, and he says to me, he goes, this is going to be so great. We're going to be, you know, on American Bandstand, and we're going to do Soul Train, and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him, and I was like, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going to do that. And the record came out, and it exploded. And literally, in two months, we were in L.A. on Soul Train, for Don Cornelius, and I, I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did. Licensed to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States. To this day, the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week, a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop. Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part 2, but instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip-hop. Using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, from the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles, the head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more cowbell. With their Commodores-powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy. Paul's Boutique really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record, nobody would heard that before. People didn't know you could make a record sound like that. It's just this beautifully layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick, they sampled David Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears, they were open to everything. And you could never make that record today. It'd be way too expensive. You could still use recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them. So it hit a lucky time where they, there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with. With the release of Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys had reinvented their sound. It was another masterpiece, but it was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George. Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were going to grow with them. And what happened is the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans. Ten years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. 
Fast forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots. They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you don't end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor of it. Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. The record's blend of punk, funk, and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins Band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Linkin Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach. It's a phenomenon how influential they are on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear basically becomes an instant uh, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend, Tony Hawk. These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate, punk, just the, the whole vibe, and uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of, of our interests would have. The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song Mullet Head on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994 that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single Sabotage was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii Five-O, Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To The Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix Up, Adam MCA Yauk was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th, 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony, having been admitted to the hospital the same day. 
The following month, Adam MCA Yauk died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and Ad-Rock would not perform under the Beastie Boys' name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game, selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. If you like music, our arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, and my favorite, George Martin, the fifth Beatle. I know, he's British, but the impact the Beatles had on American music, well, they're still having it. This is Lee Habib, the Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.